Today's episode is sponsored by News Voice. As we talk about frequently, including in today's episode, media consolidation poses an enormous danger to democracy, and everyone is better off when we all make an effort to get our news and information from as many sources as possible. And News Voice has come up with a new solution to this problem. News Voice is a website and app for iOS and Android, which you can access for free by going to newsvoice.com slash best. It gives you a personalized news feed by aggregating a mix of mainstream media sources, international sources, and independent media sources. The whole site is fueled by crowdsourcing. You can upvote stories you think are important so other people will see them, you can add stories to the site, or you can add a source that's missing for a story. Check it out for yourself by downloading the app for free by going to newsvoice.com best. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the danger the major tech monopolies pose to the foundations of our democracy. Clips today come from the Tom Hartman program, Ideas from the CBC, Jim Hightower, The Laura Flanders Show, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, This Is Hell, and Weekly Economics. Norman, in Nokomis, Florida. Am I saying that right, Norman? Yeah, Nakomis. No shoes, no shirt, Nakomis. <laughs> I love it. Warming has got it too. <laughs> it's got it too cold. But hey, listen, Tom. Yeah. I would rather have uh, a monopoly running things than a government. I think would people the people could could decide with their dollars uh, who's actually running things. Where when you when you install some kind of big government one world thing, uh, it's just too hard to get rid of that. There's been there's been monopolies and dynasties going on since the dawn of time, one form or another. They come and they go, and uh, you know, it, it, it just you know. So, so what if somebody's running stuff? If the government needs ships built, they go to a shipbuilder and they get ships built for a price. If they don't like that price, they go to another shipbuilder get another price. If you get a government just that says, "Well, we're going to build ships on our own." And hire government employees, then 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 you don't have any competition that way either. So you're you're forsaking you're forsaking one monopoly. Norman, your sales pitch is the is pretty much the exact sales pitch that David Koch was running on in 1980 in the Libertarian ticket, and and it's that government is bad, corporations are good, you can trust corporations. But the reality is that the government that we have, which uh, millions or hundreds of thousands, certainly, I believe millions of Americans have literally fought and died to create and protect. That George Washington had three horses shot out from underneath him trying to create. This government should be of, by, and for, to paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we the people. And, and corporations are never of, by, and for, we the people. Corporations are always of, by, and for, the profit. And there's nothing wrong with that intrinsically if, unless it is absolutely unregulated, which is the direction that we've been moving since Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act in 1983. And, and that logic chain, what, ba- what, what the Koch brothers are basically saying is the government is terrible. You can't trust yourself to govern yourself. So we will govern for you by controlling the economy. It's the economy is more important than democracy. The marketplace is more important than democracy. And frankly, Norman, that's BS. It is a lie that the billionaires have gotten you to believe 
and gotten, frankly and sadly, a lot of Americans to believe. And once you go down that road, if you get rid of our government and you replace it with a bunch of monopolistic corporations, then you have lost all your freedom. The only thing that is standing between between you and absolute corporate subjection, as we had when our government was weak prior to the 1910s, basically, was corporate rule. You had employees. I mean, you know, look at the Ludlow massacre. People tried to, you know, in the 1880s in Colorado, they said that, you know, we, we, we're going to go on strike. We want to have decent wages. And what did the railroad do? They, they brought in machine guns and shot up not just the not just the, the railroad workers, but their families in the tents that they were sleeping in. You, you, the, the, the Pullman Porter strike, the, the Haymarket Square rights. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. If you get the government out of the way, what's going to happen is corporations are going to, 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 to paraphrase Grover Cleveland, president of the United States in 1886, in his uh, State of the Union address in either 86 or 87, 1886 or 1887, he said, the iron heel of industry is upon the neck of the average American. He was talking about the railroad monopolies. And because they were setting, they set their prices wherever they want. This country was birthed in opposition to monopoly. The biggest corporation on earth was the British East India Company in 1773. And in 1773, when the the government of Britain, well, frankly, when there was a recession, the, 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 the great panic of 1770, there was a recession going on and the East India Company had hundreds of thousands, had millions of pounds of, of tea in their warehouses in, in the UK that they couldn't get rid of. They couldn't sell the stuff. And they had already paid taxes on it because at that time they paid taxes once they brought it into their warehouse. So the British government, with the Tea Act of 1773, said, you don't have to pay your taxes on this tea. In fact, we will refund the money to you. And the British government gave the East India Company what in today's money would be billions of dollars in tax refunds. And then the East India Company used that money to bring that tea to the United States at a discount and try to put out of business the small entrepreneurs up and down the East Coast who were running tea shops and importing their own tea. And the the entrepreneurs of America, the citizens of America, were so outraged about the fact that, that, that this giant transnational corporation was trying to just, you know, wipe out all these small businesses because, the, you know, the, back in 1773, every other block had a tea shop on it. And the, and the entrepreneurs of America were so outraged about this that they committed a million dollar, in today's dollars, a million dollar act of sabotage, of vandalism, throwing that tea in Boston Harbor. And that, that Boston Tea Party in, the, in the, the, the late fall, early winter of 1773 led directly to the American Revolution of 1776. That was the point. A year before that, Thomas Jefferson had written a pamphlet called The Rights of British Americans, encouraging Americans to be good British citizens. Three months after the British, after the the Tea Party revolt against a transnational corporation, Thomas Jefferson was saying, time for us to become independent of Great Britain because they're supporting these giant monopolistic corporations. You cannot trust giant monopolistic corporations. They are accountable to nothing except the dollar. And you will not have enough power, enough political or economic power to boycott them. You can't control them through boycotts. It doesn't work.
um, there was a legitimate excitement about the potential of tech-driven journalism. And for a moment, I think, the civic design of the internet and the civic purpose of journalism seemed to be aligned. But then something changed. The principles of the open web that held such promise for citizens and journalists gave way to an ecosystem dominated by a small number of companies who now hold tremendous power and influence over what we see and what we know. When you talk about these international giants, there's just so few, you can name them on one hand, you know, Facebook, Google, and so on. Very few monopolies with a lot of power. Could this ever be broken? Could a new technological platform come in that it could be as big as Google or Apple? I think the, the fear amongst regulators and increasingly governments is that the nature of the system does not allow for competition at the moment. That we do have a, have a number of monopolies um, coexisting. Um, Facebook, App, Apple, Google, and Amazon all having different, asp- different types of monopolies or different commercial spaces. And so I do think one of the tools that is going to be attempted to, to push back against the power of these companies is going to be antitrust regulation. And it will probably originate in the EU where there is already a push to break up the activities of some of these companies inside the EU. And the language of monopoly and the language of anti-competition is really sort of driving the discourse around these companies in Europe in a way it it hasn't yet in North America. But it could. And you're already starting to see rumblings of this in the US Congress, in the activist community around antitrust and monopolies. So it's not impossible that this becomes a real lever that's used to seek to break up or to at least to reduce the power of some of these companies. In terms of the states, what's really scary, and it's scary in part because I don't understand it completely, but I'm trying to understand this whole controversy about net neutrality. And almost because it sounds complex, I wonder if, the, if it's going to grab the imagination of the average sort of American. But they're trying to break against what Obama did to ensure that the net was neutral and that companies are going to be able to determine more and more what you can access. Tell me about what your thoughts of what's happening right now in the states about net neutrality. So I think that it will fundamentally change the structure of the internet. The internet was by design an open space. And a core attribute of it was that information flowed through the system in a way that was unimpeded by those that controlled the system. And that will change. The the companies that give us access to the internet will be able to decide what content we see and what content we don't see or the pace with which we see it, right? So that is a a significant change to the character of the internet. However, the internet is already filtered to us in many other ways. And one of the biggest ways it's filtered to us is via platforms. So Facebook has interestingly been allowed to sit outside of the net neutrality debate while at the same time it filters the content its users see. So I think we will probably end up in a place where uh, we will have two filters on the internet. We will have filtering by the cable providers or the internet providers who will make deals with different types of content to provide it to us at different speeds and for different prices. And then we'll have another layer of filtering, which are the algorithmic systems that the platforms are using to filter the content that comes through their system. 
And this is a very far cry from the decentralized internet that was imagined 30 years ago. This ecosystem is supported by the relentless collection and sale of data about its participants. And our attention has turned into a commodity, a model of surveillance capitalism that has an unending thirst for content. It is a system which measures value as engagement and where virality is what is incentivized. One that is determined by technologies that are both hidden from view and which were designed around incentives that are in private rather than public interests. Give me a scenario. So Silicon Valley is extending into the education space. They want to make our schools more efficient. They want to monitor children in schools to help them learn. They think they can teach and run an education system better than the industrial infrastructure which we've built. And that, in many ways, may be the case. But what it could very easily lead to is more and more of our education system being moved to the digital space, more and more use of digital agents and avatars to teach our children that are optimized to teach them individually rather than collectives. That's just one example, but I, I think we're heading down a path where more and more of the functions of our society are being implemented by a very small number of companies using vast data stores about our lives. And that will lead to some incredible efficiencies in the healthcare system, in the financial system, in the education system. But we're also losing control of it in a, in a way that I think we need to be careful about. In the digital spaces determined by Facebook and Google, journalism must compete in what is ultimately a market for our attention. Journalism has no privilege in this model, alongside all of the information fighting to reach us. It is but one voice, one content type, competing with gossip, propaganda, advertising, and all the information shared by our friends and family. And is doing so within a system where the financial incentives are set by and are to the benefit of the platforms themselves. One notable shift of this consequence that I saw and lived through is that scholars and practitioners of digital journalism once champions of the internet, began to question the character of the media ecosystem itself. I'd come to the Tau Center with the hope of learning on the front lines of an industry being remade, but my growing fear was that the internet was profoundly ill-suited not just for the future of journalism, but also for the integrity of our democracy. are not merely un-American, they're virulently anti-American, suppressing our fundamental values of fairness and opportunity for all. So, our people have instinctively rebelled at monopoly avarice, the Boston Tea Party, the populist movement, union action, trustbusters, muckrakers, the New Deal, and on and on. Yet, in just the last couple of decades, corporate elites and their public officials have enshrined monopoly power as a legitimate form of business in our land, aggressively protected by lawmakers, regulators, and judges. For example, after our grassroots economy was crushed in 2007 by the greed of too-big-to-fail Wall Street banksters, officials bailed out the villainous banks at taxpayer expense and deliberately made them bigger, more powerful, and more dangerous than ever. 
Today, just five banks control nearly half of all assets in the U.S. financial system. You'd think such a massive power grab by bank monopolists would produce an equally massive 24-7 barrage of coverage by the nation's media outlets, which purport to be the defenders of democracy. But while an occasional story pops out about monopoly abuse, there's no comprehensive coverage to rally a public rebellion against what's become the United States of monopoly rule. Why? Look at who owns America's mass media. Three decades ago, 50 large media conglomerates control 90% of the media. This year, after a frenzy of mergers among those giants, just five mega media monopolists will control 90% of what we see, hear, and read. It's not in their interest to inform the public about the threat that monopolies pose to our democracy, so they don't. This is Jim Hightower saying, as the great journalist A.J. Liebling warned nearly 40 years ago, freedom of the press is guaranteed only to those who own one. To help battle the monopolies, go to Center for Media and Democracy at prwatch.org/cmd. This show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you who signed up to support the show on Patreon for as little as a couple bucks a month. And those patrons have been getting a lot more for their money recently. Members at the $6 level are getting more bonus episodes than before. Patrons at the $2 and up level get to participate in a weekly poll to help decide which issues the show is going to cover. And now I want to sweeten the deal even more. Previously, ad-free versions of the podcast were only available at the full membership level, but now I'm going to make them available for all patrons. I've always been more interested in having as many paying supporters as possible rather than targeting the few listeners who could afford to contribute large sums, and this is all part of that philosophy. So, to reiterate, for only $2 a month, you can now listen to the show completely ad-free and have a voice every week helping to decide which topics you're going to get to listen to in upcoming episodes. And for members at the $6 level, in addition to all of that, they get regular bonus episodes, and the bonus show they'll be getting today includes a couple more news stories surrounding the issue of monopoly and antitrust legislation, but also some conversation about my editorial process and how I'm always trying to listen skeptically and watch out for untrustworthy sources. So if you want to support the show, and we could really use your help, join up on Patreon and know that any dollar amount really does make a difference. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash bestofleft. Thanks so much for your support. I realize this is a big claim, that platforms threaten democracy. So I want to spend some time outlining exactly what I mean by that. Since the election, the term fake news has become pretty much everything and nothing. But I want to suggest that it's important not because of the 2016 election, but because it reveals two structural problems in our digital infrastructure, the surveillance economy and the growing role of artificial intelligence. Let me talk a bit about both of those. First, the problem of fake news, misinformation, disinformation, or automated propaganda, it has many names and nuances, is at its core a product of the way our attention is surveyed and the way data about us is monetized. Broadcast media once had a near monopoly on the access to large audiences. If an advertiser wanted to reach a particular demographic, they would purchase ad space on a publisher that claimed to reach that group. Advertising technologies, or what's called ad tech, has upended this model. Data brokers and platforms use vast sources of data about our behavior 
to build highly specific and detailed profiles of each of their users. These data are collected from our online activity, our call records, our movement, our application data, even the rhythm of the typing of our keyboard. The Internet of Things has bridged the gap to our offline lives, listening and watching us in our homes. These data are then sold as commodities and are used to infer our moods, desires, and our fears. This allows platforms to serve far better and more relevant ads to us, which is why ads, when you search something, sort of follow you around the Internet. But its reach, I think, is far more invasive. Facebook has told advertisers that it can identify when a teenager feels insecure, worthless, and when they're in need of a confidence boost. As Zenep Tufeki, one of, the, one of the most thoughtful scholars studying this topic, recently observed, and I quote, Think Huxley, not Orwell. 21st century surveillance and manipulation is new, individualized, and plays on our social needs, unquote. So if Orwell's 1984 depicted obedience through force by a heavily centralized state, Huxley's Brave New World foretold a population entertained into obedience through their infinite appetite for distractions. People, as Huxley said, taught to love their servitude. He could not have dreamed of the world, I think, that we have built, one where we trade personal data about all aspects of our digital and physical behavior for free use of Gmail, Facebook's newsfeed, and Instagram. One where we let Amazon Echo, Google Home, and Apple Siri into our living rooms to passively monitor our lives. One where these same companies then use these data to redesign our cities, build out our transportation systems, and make our schools more efficient. Samsung even puts a warning in the instructions of their smart TV not to talk about criminal activity in their proximity. And, and we buy these things. We bring them into our homes. Crazy. This model has, of course, killed the revenue model for news, to bring us back to journalism. Almost all new digital ads last year went to Google or Facebook. And it's immensely profitable. You can't underscore this enough. Facebook's annual revenue, nearly all of which comes from online ads, has more than tripled in the past four years to $27.6 billion in 2016. But it's also incentivized the spread of low over high quality content and unleashed a market for surveillance where data about our lives enables anyone to buy an ac access to any audience for any reason. The ultimate promise of this model, of course, of commercial surveillance, is that media can serve as a tool of persuasion, that it can change our behavior. And it can. It's immensely powerful for this. In one internal Facebook experiment conducted on 61 million users, about 340,000 extra people turned out to vote, because of a single election day message highlighting their friends who had voted. The power this demonstrates is, is really profound, and it's used to sell the power of Facebook. Facebook promotes this capability to influence behavior. But the potential for abuse when this capability is offered to anyone with a message to peddle is, I think, simply breathtaking. The system was, of course, not built overnight, nor is it predetermined. As I've been saying, and we'll talk about again, it was designed so I'd like to spend a moment talking about a few of these design decisions in the case of Facebook and how I think they explain some of this fake news debate and where we are right now in this crisis of democracy. The moment after his re-election, a photo of Barack and Michelle Obama embracing with the text four more years became one of the most shared photos in history. But it happened on Twitter. At the time, Facebook was largely used for sharing information about family and friends. A weekly or daily click, not the hour or minute-by-minute -minute engagement that is needed to compete in this platform economy. 
Over the next four years, though, this would change. First, Facebook tried to make their content more shareable. Eight days after the Obama photo, Facebook launched the equivalent of a retweet, their share function. This was followed by hashtags and then to significant consequence, trending topics. A new space in the corner of the homepage for stories getting attention across the platform, not just in one's own social feed. Content could now go viral on Facebook. Second, they sought to optimize mobile ads by putting them directly in the news feed itself, the column of the site that had previously been reserved for content from one's friends. This had the effect of making paid content social. It could be liked, shared, and commented on, and therefore could spread organically. The effect was really powerful. Newsfeed ads had 21 times higher click-through rates than Facebook sidebar ads. Third, in consultation with journalists, Facebook created something called Instant Articles, a tool allowing publishers, such as the New York Times, to distribute content directly inside the platform, getting faster load times, greater reach, and a cut of the ad revenue ads that Facebook sold against that content. Did traditional media make a mistake when they became so heavily dependent upon Facebook, upon Twitter, or is that just inevitable? I think many traditional media organizations have for over a decade faced an existential threat, and they are trying everything they can and experimenting in as many ways as possible to replace these declining revenues and to to continue to have relevance in our civic discourse. And it looked like, and it still is in many ways, that that relevance can be found on these platforms. But in so doing, they gave up many of the things that were unique to them. And I'm not sure how they get those back. Like what? I think the ability to do the type of journalism that they intrinsically think is important is also being diminished. It is very difficult for these journalistic institutions to hold what is now the biggest power structure in our society these platform companies, accountable because they are embedded within them. And that has led to the type of journalism we've seen around these companies um, or the lack of journalism we've seen around these companies. Um, I think it changes how they report on and hold governments accountable who are deeply engaged with these platforms, who use these platforms for their own advertising, for their own governance, to implement their own agendas um, it's it, it's a, it's been very difficult for journalism to hold that accountable, right? So I think there's some some real things they've lost in their place in society. The Instant Articles tool worked so well for Facebook that they then opened it up to anyone, not just the reputable publishers that had been given it to begin with, marketers, content producers, and political campaigns around the world. What's more, it all now looked like journalism. A fourth change was brought about by a controversy. On May 9th, 2016, so in the lead-up to the summer before the U.S. election, a leading tech site, Gizmodo, revealed that Facebook's trending topics were actively curated by people who suppressed conservative views. A week later, a dozen conservative leaders flew to Silicon Valley to meet with Facebook's leadership. And as part of their response, Facebook just fired the human editors of Trending and they made it fully algorithmic. Less than 48 hours after the last human curator had left the building, the Facebook trending list was subsumed with false and offensive material. As Craig Silverman reported for BuzzFeed at the time, the next three months would see a spike in what he called fake news, misinformation made to look like legitimate journalism. 
During this critical period leading up to the election, the top 20 false stories on Facebook generated greater engagement than the top 20 stories on Facebook from major news outlets. By the 2016 election, a few months later, Facebook had largely won the platform war. With over 2 billion active users, 2 trillion searchable posts, and a billion new posts a day, they reach more people than any media organization in history. They largely control the distribution, the monetization, and the audience for journalism. They had become the infrastructure, ultimately, for the free press. But to get there from that moment of concern in 2012 about that Twitter photo also meant making key design changes to the platform that created the ideal conditions for fake news. New tools created the potential for virality. Tools such as instant articles legitimized Facebook for news and then allowed any content to look like journalism. Ads were embedded directly into our news feeds, disguised as content shared by our friends and family. And getting rid of humans allowed an algorithm to run wild. The level of concentration that we've seen is really just remarkable across all of these different industries. And there is out there, I think what can be safely characterized is a grassroots anti-monopoly movement, right? I mean, there are all of these communities in uh, small towns and rural areas that, and, and cities as well that are creating municipal cooperatively owned broadband. Um, there are places that are taking control of their energy system and forcing utilities to have to play by their rules and really create a distributed solar and wind-based system. And there are communities that are fighting against big business. They're uh, putting limits on Walmart and chain stores uh, and beginning to react to Amazon in different ways. And all the stuff that, that Joe's organization is involved in in terms of action by farmers to take control. All of these things that are going on, they don't see themselves necessarily as part of an anti-monopoly movement. Mm or even connected. But of course, if you look at all of the issues that I just named and many others, they're all about corporate power and about challenging corporate power at the local level. So I think there's this just huge opportunity to build that up, to marry that, and to have people self-define and recognize what they're doing is about monopoly, and then to begin to build momentum at the, at the federal level to actually bring back antitrust enforcement. Joe, when we talk about monopoly, how does it affect the people that you work with? I would like to share one just on how monopoly power wove itself into NAFTA. Smithfield decides it wants to take over all of the pork in both the U.S. and in Mexico. So it dumps cheap pork into Mexico. It starts driving those small farmers out of business. Small butchers who depended upon small farmers are starting to be driven out of business. They sat there, it's recorded, with candles is all they had. They couldn't afford the electric bill so they could try to stay in business. No different than small businessmen and women in San Francisco, New York, or St. Louis. But they felt that pressure of that large corporation that controlled the market that squeezed them out of business. And ultimately, in that story, the two people that owned that butcher shop wound up working for Mr. Smithfield's uh, plant uh, there in North Carolina. So... What we see, what, what's the impact? Uh, we've lost uh, 90% of America's family farmers, and we drove those farmers out of business uh, because of corporate power having control over our government 
Uh, corporate power, uh, monopolies uh, create uh, market power, which creates economic power, which ultimately creates political power. And the people wind up being the ones that are harmed by it, by their own government. We talk a lot about media power and cultural power. And some of these big monopolies have quite positive press. I'm thinking of Amazon. There are people who say this is just a shift in the economy like the Industrial Revolution. It was this way. Now it's going to be that way. What's the difference with Amazon? I mean, Amazon would like us to believe that in order to have all the benefits of e-commerce and this new technology, we have to accept it controlling all of that. Um, But that's a myth. I mean, there are ways in which we could restructure e-commerce that would open up opportunity and be far more competitive. Amazon is is an order of magnitude different from, say, Walmart. I mean, Walmart's a monopoly, at least in the food system. They have a quarter of the food system. They control up the supply chain. There, There are 40 metro areas where Walmart has half of all grocery sales, right? Amazon is something very different and much more dangerous and destructive. So Amazon is really a company that's about controlling the underlying infrastructure of the economy. So one piece of that is the online platform. You used to be a few years ago, people looking to buy something online, they would start with a search engine. And they would type in the product and they would get different businesses would come up, including Amazon, but others. Now most people start right on Amazon. And that's a function of our Prime memberships. That's a very clever uh, thing that Amazon has done to get people to start right there on Amazon. And the result of that is that every other kind of business that wants to sell us anything, they can no longer successfully put up their own website because there's no traffic that they can pick up. And so what they have done is become third-party sellers on Amazon's platform. In essence, this is what we faced with the railroads a century ago, um, you know, where you had these, these guys who got control of the railroads. They owned other industries. They would use the fact that they controlled your access to the market to keep their competitors off those rails or to just extract money from the small businesses. So what Amazon has done essentially, and, and we're seeing this, this control of infrastructure not only with the platform, they also cl- control cloud computing, which a lot of their competitors rely on, and they're increasingly taking over package delivery. They're going after UPS and FedEx. And so the idea is that eventually the entire consumer goods market manufacture and distribution of goods, Amazon will control the pipelines. And they will pick off the segments of that market that are most lucrative, and they will push their own products through to the exclusion of everybody else. And then the stuff they don't want to deal with, they will let other companies do, but they'll levy a tax, essentially, across their trade. And so what we're ending up with here is not a market. I mean, a market is a public arena controlled by public rules where people can buy and sell and exchange. This is a private arena controlled by a single company. That's incredibly dangerous. So can antitrust legislation combat this? Absolutely. I mean, the precedent of the railroads is a good one. I mean, the railroad, that power that I talked about that they exercised led to our very first antitrust laws. That's where it all began. I mean, in the case of Amazon, I think you need to break apart Amazon as a retailer and producer of goods from Amazon as a platform. The part that is a platform becomes uh, a common carrier, the way we've done with railroads and and telephone companies, uh, where it's it's all comers on equal terms. uh, And and people can use that infrastructure in an equitable way, and businesses can compete across that infrastructure. And there will be public regulations to make sure the public interest is served. Um, So the tools are there. It's a question of, of building the political will. What do voters who care about these issues need to ask those candidates to get at where 
where they stand. What are you going to do about the fact that so much of um, our lives, our community's future, is is controlled by a small number of actors uh, who you know aren't, have no accountability and aren't working in the public interest? What's the concrete reality of that? I mean, if you're running for federal office, are you going to join the Antitrust Caucus, which is newly formed uh, in the House and is a really exciting development? Are you going to be part of that? Are you going to be a leader in that? There are small businesses for whom credit card fees are a bigger part of their expenses than payroll, right? Um, are you going to go after that monopoly? This is even an issue for local and state uh, elected officials that we need to be talking about, you know, because there's a lot of power that your city government has, that your state government has. You know, are you at the state level going to be pushing for laws that rein in? There, there are these companies called pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs. Uh, CVS Health is one of them, and they use their power to raise drug prices on consumers, but also to push the independent pharmacies out of the market. Are you going to be somebody who's going to fight that? Are you going to fight for local banks and credit unions so we can get capital back on Main Street and not stuck on Wall Street? Um, at, your, at the local level, are you going to fight to keep chain stores out? Are you going to use the power of zoning to uh, ensure that you know the chains maybe can be there, but they don't overwhelm and take up all the real estate and make it impossible for that person who wants to start a new local business uh, to be able to do so. There's a lot of tools out there. And, I, and I, as I said at the beginning, I really think we've got to see all these strategies as being about fighting monopoly. And I think that's the language we need to start using, the language of monopoly. I'd like to just say one thing on the local business. For goodness sake, stop giving tax dollars to the chains to invite them into your town and doing nothing for the small businesses that help build those communities. So at least stop doing that at the local level. And that, that resonates in elections at the county level and, and the city level. You end your book with a chapter called The Paper Rebellion. You think there's a movement back to paper, back to reading books you can hold in your hand and not just look at Kindle? I see that trend as well, but what do you think? Well, we've seen this with the resurgence of independent bookstores. I mean, one of the hopeful things is the way in which the death of Barnes & Noble and Borders cleared out this space for independent bookstores, which have become communal gathering places and they've become people have become attached to them not just because they want to go there to shop but because i think that they represent this kind of spirit of resistance that we're talking about where they're not corporate they're not homogenized and where they actually feel organically connected to the places that we live and so that's hopeful to me and then the other thing is is that i think as people have gravitated back to paper books which has happened for two reasons, by the way. One is that the publishers actually were aggressive in trying to maintain their ability to control price. And this is a crucial thing. I actually think price-fixing laws need to be relaxed in the face of these monopolies because producers need to be much more empowered in our system and, and need to have much better position to bargain against Amazon and Walmart. But but anyway, so that's one thing. And the other is, is that I feel like people 
have this sense that they need a break from their screens. And so they've gravitated back to paper as a place where they can have private thought, where they can recharge their minds, where they can be engaged in thinking and contemplation in a less trammeled sort of way. And so I actually, I do feel some measure of optimism, even having produced a pretty bleak apocalyptic book. We're talking with Franklin Four, the author of the new book, World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. One thing that I would urge you to do, the companies like to monopolize words like efficiency and low price. People pay low price for Wonder Bread and other fat, sugar, salt containing foods, but then they pay a huge price in terms of damage to their health, high blood pressure, youth diabetes, etc. The same with efficiency. Efficiency, corporate definition, is usually very short term. It's an efficiency that breeds the conditions for devastating costs later on, such as in our motor vehicle technology. So you do end with, in a hopeful note, and I'd just like to read your last short paragraph to our listeners. Quote, We have deluded ourselves into caring more deeply about convenience and efficiency than about the things that last, compared to the sustaining nourishment of the contemplative life and the deep commitment to text. Many of the promiscuous pleasures of the web are vanishing. The contemplative life remains freely available to us through our choices, what we read and buy, how we commit to leisure and self-improvement, the passing over of empty temptation, our preservation of the quiet spaces, and intentional striving to become masters of our mastery, end quote. So to show that it's not as easy as even the most hopeful people think, let me ask you a personal question. Are you still shopping Amazon? I do. This is the hard part, and this is why I think I try to make better choices in my life, and I've succeeded somewhat in doing that. But in the end, what it's going to take is a political solution to these problems, that as individuals, we can do a lot to create spaces for us. I think I, you know, I try to do a lot to practice what I preach in that paragraph, but there's some ways in which these corporations are inescapable. It would help all of us as consumers if the competition began to challenge the big four, well, certainly Amazon, if the competition began, begins to challenge Amazon, Walmart is developing a strategy through acquisitions to challenge Amazon. But as our local hardware store owner once said, why is Amazon so appealing? When you come to my store, you get instant delivery. You buy it, you pick it up, and you go home. So I think we do need the contemplative life. We need people to get your book into libraries around the country, to start discussions at independent bookstores, and to pay homage to posterity, which is likely to curse us if we don't wake up to our civic and democratic pretensions. As you write, my journalistic mission was inspired by an overwhelming sense of hostility toward the tech industry. After all, it had stolen my livelihood and left me with nothing but uh, memes to eat. It had kidnapped my friends and sent me a 
email ransom note called Facebook, where everyone insisted that everything was going great, that they were being treated well, that the food was always excellent. But I knew better. Big tech trampled over every enjoyable experience in the world. It wouldn't stop until everything felt like the same damn thing, staring at a screen. My entrepreneurial mission, meanwhile, required me to outwardly embrace what I privately abhorred. It was an impossible situation of my own design, Over time, the contradictions wore me down until I lay broken in a fetal ball on a sagging mattress in a decrepit Airbnb surrounded by empty beer bottles and small, sad keepsakes of the life I'd left behind. Is that what you think Silicon Valley and the Silicon Valley way is prepared to do to everybody, to do to all of culture, that we will be left confused and broken by a system that rewards and destroys? I think that, you know, the the best case scenario is like, uh, that uh, old Pixar movie Wall-E, you know where that's the best uh, case scenario. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> no, I mean that's a little grim. I mean you read one of most grim parts of the whole introduction, uh, and, and you know uh, I'm glad that you put that image of me in the in the heads of all your listeners. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean what? Where where is the sort of uh, a uh, vibrant, healthy person that's emerged after, uh, you know, a tour in the trenches of uh, internet culture. I mean, show me this person that has emerged whole and healthy and happier, uh, or at least happier than they were before. And, and you know, then we can talk about about the upside. Um, I, I, I haven't met this person. Everyone I know who's on uh, social media or uh, even, uh, I don't know, online banking, I mean, has, is just frustrated. <laughs> at a minimum frustrated so uh you know i'm i'm just old enough to remember uh before uh the cell phone uh ubiquitous connection era and and there were things i miss uh i miss a lot you know uh i miss uh serendipity and unplanned days and undistracted moments and i i think that uh you know even if you're someone who is managed to maintain in the face of this uh gig economy a uh you know comfortable middle class lifestyle i mean one i would say uh, beware uh they're coming for you too and uh two i would say you know reflect on uh reflect on the things that you used to do and the ways that we used to relate and and i think uh you know i don't want to sound like some kind of a, a traditionalist conservative or something i'm not but you know some of those things were better i think that we really need to get a handle on these companies quickly because there needs to be democratic control over technologies that are are this uh, powerful and have this much of an effect on society. Uh nobody got to vote on on whether we'd have iPhones everywhere, you know. Uh, uh but maybe we should. Maybe we should be able to vote on that. So what does it say to you then about the state of US politics or specifically the state of the Democratic Party or even Reveal to you historically about the Obama administration when you hear Obama and the like praising the Silicon Valley way, uh, what you see as a fall, false hope, as the future that will save us all. What does that tell you about the state of politics when we think that the Silicon Valley way is going to save us all when you see is it possibly destroying us all? Well, I, you know, the Democratic Party, I would say, is primarily responsible for empowering Silicon Valley going back to the 90s when Clinton and Gore wrote, uh, basically wrote the laws that regulate the internet or don't regulate the internet would be a better way to put it. Uh, all the way through the Obama administration, he was very close, um, with, 
Silicon Valley, drew many members of his White House from there. Uh, Google's Eric Schmidt was a frequent White House visitor, and he was even involved in strategy. You know, maybe that's part of the reason that the the Democrats failed to see uh, Trump coming in that wave, uh, because, you know, they were they were dazzled. Uh, they were dazzled by money. I mean, I guess I'm, I, I, maybe this says uh, something about the, um, the stock I, I give to politicians, but I mean, I, I don't find it surprising that they were uh, co-opted by Silicon Valley. I mean, they had a lot of money. And, you know, Democrats especially are used to, they love California, rich, rich Californians. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, they love Hollywood, uh, Silicon Valley. They have this image of a progressive businessman. They talk about conscious capitalism and giving back. And it's, you know, they seem, they seem much nicer than the wall street people. Right. But that's, uh, that's just, that's just how they relate. It's a cultural uh, screen. I mean, they're, they're really the same, uh, under the skin. So I, 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 uh, I, I would say that it, <clears throat> it reflects what we already know about our politics, which is that they are completely dominated by money. Um, and that you will never see a you will never see a really uh, democratic uh, uh, initiative from the I mean small D democratic initiative from the tech industry. It's simply not in their interest. And uh, I, I would be very wary of, of anything that they were promoting through the Democratic Party or any any other political conduit. So we've got, to, we've got to kind of ask ourselves, really, whether these kind of concentrations of data and, and advanced computational prowess and capital are necessarily always a bad thing. I mean, one of the kind of most powerful economic logics that the kind of the digital technology has unleashed is the one where kind of data and platforms feed into each other. So um, you create a platform. Um, it begins to produce data, which improves the platform. The platform gets bigger. The platform begins to enjoy platform effects, meaning that really um, it, uh, it's, it's kind of increase in size um, gives it an exponential increase in value. So, the, you know, the, it's far more valuable to be on Facebook, to be on High Five, through the sheer reason that there are more people on Facebook. Mm-hmm. If you want to get your video seen, you put it on YouTube. If you want to sell something or buy something, you do it on Amazon. Um, and this kind of this is a kind of cycle of dominance, and it, it kind of means that 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 naturally we don't have markets emerging in each of these new areas of economic digital life. We have one or two players. We have a monopoly or a duopoly in almost all of them. As 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 we try and kind of politically challenge these concentrations of data, and and um, in a sense break them up because we're kind of instinctively nervous about these things becoming too big and too powerful. In other parts of the world, these concentrations are actually embraced. And that must be, I think, one of the reasons why like Europe hasn't created our own kind of tech unicorn um, or, or, or decacorn uh, <laughs> yet. Okay, so that all sounds really gloomy. Um, what, would a, what would a good version of the future look like? And, and what can we do to make sure that we get that one and not, and not the gloomy one? 
you know, I mean, I th- there's this essay question which is often posed, which is kind of how, you know, is, is there going to be more liberation and, con- uh, and, and empowerment or is there going to be more kind of control and, and, uh, and oppression than ever before? And to be honest with you, I think that we're probably going to have to just live in a world where there's more of both happening um, <laughs> more than there ever was before. Um, and, and kind of come, become more comfortable with, with there both being all these kind of astonishing opportunities for us all to do good to one another. And there's going to be all these new potent forms of, of, of control and, and, and injury. Um, and, and they're going to be wrapped up all together in basically people finding, um, through technology, um, new ways of doing the things that they've always done. Uh, both be selfless and kind and cruel and, 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 uh, and evil all at once. Um, I think at the moment it f- very much feels like we are con- constantly groping back to the kind of toolkit that we had last time we need to do this. Oh, we need more regulation. Um, we need maybe to create a professional body of algorithm makers. Um, you know, a Royal College of Algorithmists. So I think I might have even recommended that on the last <laughs> podcast. Um, you know, or, you know, and we need more primary legislation. Um, you know, and we need to have greater public scrutiny. And, and my least favorite of all of them, we need to have a public debate. My God. I mean, like, the number of it's so easy to say. I mean, at a time when we need to move quicker than ever before, having a public debate on all these issues, um, simply can't, um, simply can't be the answer alone. Um, we need to find a new kind of toolkit. Um, I don't think we can simply grope back to those to those kind of problem solvers of the past. Um, how do you make an algorithm a, a transparent is unclear to me. And, and whether a Royal College of Algorithmists will control a Silicon Valley tech giant, I think is also unclear to me. I think there needs to be a whole new series of ways in which we, we try and enforce the rules now. I don't know what that full toolkit looks like, but there are some things that emerge and they look like they have to be part of it. Kind of ethics by design as a principle, I think, is going to be absolutely key. Um, also key will be, I think, kind of the the movement of a lot of how tech is built into public life. So I, I cannot see in five years' time how um, tech developers will essentially be subject to their own private moral de- determinations around how a lot of tech is built and whether a lot of tech is good or bad. I mean, that's not how we build cars. That's not how we build planes. That's not how we build almost all the technology which is important to us. It's subject to a series of publicly understood and enforced rules which tries to make it safe and tries to make it pro-social. And there's, and there's a similar kind of story to the rise of the car. You know, when it first came, it was a death trap. People were really worried. And it took... 70 years before we had seatbelts and, you know, we really had some, a piece of technology that, you know, really helped us get around and didn't kill as many people. So we shouldn't expect that this even more radical new form of technology is going to be solved, you know, in a couple of years. So it's going to be a long journey. Or the firearm. I mean, sometimes states can act really coercively and say, like, this piece of technology just simply isn't going to be available for you to use. We, we are just going to control this. Um, you know, states and states do, can do that. They they do have a monopoly on the legal system, and they do have a monopoly on legitimate violence. So, you know, and right at this moment, where it really feels like in in states are being undermined in in so many different ways. Um, I think I think eventually they're going to react to all this kind of stuff. Like, what effect could all of this have on our democracy, which already in some ways feels quite fragile? I mean, I, I, I think that there is there is an emerging argument that um, technology and democracy are kind of inherently um, hostile to one another. 
Um, I've certainly heard um, uh, a, a, a kind of a whole spree during this kind of. We're living through a tech lash at the moment, right? I mean, there's all kinds of journalists and writers that that have kind of violently swung from the kind of 2012 Tahrir Square, the internet's going to liberate the world position to the Cambridge Analytica Edward Snowden position that we've created this kind of vast kind of surveillance manipulation machinery um, which is going to destroy democracy. I frankly think those arguments are a little bit overheated. I think democracy has endured stiffer challenges than um, than di- the digital revolution. But I do think that, again, I'm going to go back to my point around speed. I mean, I really do think that it, 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 I don't think it challenges like people's basic love of and support of a political system which they can be the authors of. I mean, I don't think any more people kind of uh, are kind of inherently hostile to democracy now in the UK than, 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 than there have been in the past. But I do think that more and more people think that it's a system that isn't really working for them and it's a system that isn't able to deliver the kind of country that they want to live in. And I think that is because um, in area after area now, it just can't act with the speed that it needs to. So I think sooner or later... Um, we're going to reopen a very, very old question, which is um, how does democracy actually work? Um, what are the actual processes and steps that you put into place to put a people in charge? The last time we really discussed this was in 1649, just after we'd cut the head off Charles I. And that the answer <laughs> that time around um, was, uh, was to create sovereign parliaments, to literally represent the people in a convenient way, all in one room, kind of representative democracy. And that's been the form of democracy that we and most of the world really um, that is democratic has lived with ever since um, around the world now I can see the kind of emergence of new kinds of politicians with new kinds of thinking some of them drawn from the free software movement and the open source community um, but there are plenty of others digital democrats I'd call them broadly who um, want to reopen that question and think that there is no reason why we have to think that in the 21st century we need to create democracy um, in the same way that as we resolved it in the 17th. We've just heard clips today, starting with Tom Hartman giving the historical context of America's fight against monopoly power since before its founding. Then we heard part one from Ideas featuring Dr. Taylor Owen explaining the threat of monopolies to democracy. Jim Hightower broke down the failure of our media to report on the danger of monopolies because they themselves are operated by near monopolies who want to avoid scrutiny. Next was part two from Ideas with Dr. Taylor Owen continuing his talk. The Laura Flanders Show spoke with Stacey Mitchell and Joe Maxwell about how monopoly economic power gets converted into political power. The Ralph Nader Radio Hour talked with Franklin Foer, author of World Without Mind, about how to undo the damage of digital monopolies. This is Hell interviewed Corey Payne about Silicon Valley tech culture and their anti-democratic tendencies. And finally, we just heard Weekly Economics discussing how we may need to rethink some of the fundamental questions of the functioning of democracy in order to recover from the damaging effects of the tech monopolies. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes notes for easy reference and sharing. Just one last thing before I get to a voicemail as we continue to keep our eye on the upcoming elections. Here's today's Midterms Minute. And 
now for the Midterms Minute, a look at the candidates and races you need to know about, shout about, and support to make sure we have a blue tsunami on November 6th. The primaries are over, the candidates are set, and now it's time to focus on the big picture fight. Everything we do between now and Election Day should be done while keeping the most vulnerable and disenfranchised among us in mind. We've included links to volunteer resources in the show notes, as well as those for Swing Left and the Democratic Party's Red to Blue program for the races we'll be mentioning today so that you know how to help. You can also view every battleground race by state at bestoftheleft.com slash activism. Today we're talking about the battleground races in Florida, where the lead-up to the midterms is already proving to be brutal. Trump only won Florida by 1.2 percent, and the state includes four pivot counties, counties that voted for Obama in 2008 and 2012 but went for Trump in 2016. Democrats are counting on some Trump regret votes this November. In the Senate, Democrat incumbent Bill Nelson is facing Republican and Florida Governor Rick Scott. Although Nelson won his second term by 13 points in 2012, this race is considered a battleground and currently rated a toss-up. As a reminder, the Democrats must retain all 10 battleground Senate seats and pick up two additional seats from Republicans to take the Senate. Moving on now to the House races, Florida's 15th district is an open seat race after Republican incumbent Dennis Ross did not seek re-election. Democrat and attorney Kristen Carlson is facing Republican and state rep Ross Spano. The latest poll shows the two candidates in a tight race, with Carlson narrowly leading. Trump won this district, and it is currently rated as a leaning Republican. In Florida's 16th district, Democrat David Shapiro will face Republican incumbent Vern Buchanan. Trump won here by a slim margin. Before the primaries were over, Buchanan was already running attack ads against Shapiro about his questionable investments. And while they do raise questions that Shapiro should answer, Buchanan's horrifying voting record and large campaign contributions from the gun lobby, oil industry, and the pharmaceutical industry are more concerning. This race is currently rated as leaning Republican. In Florida's 18th district, Democrat Lauren Bayer, a former U.S. State Department advisor under Obama, is facing Republican incumbent Brian Mast, an Army veteran who lost both of his legs in Afghanistan. The race is drawing national attention. Trump won this district by a slim margin, and it is currently rated as leaning Republican. In Florida's 26th district, which includes Miami, Democrat and Ecuadorian immigrant Demi Mucarcel Powell won her primary. She will now face Republican incumbent Carlos Curbelo, who is currently running ads portraying himself as a champion of dreamers while simultaneously making excuses for Trump's family separation at the border. Even though Curbelo won re-election in 2014 by 12 points, this district went blue in both of the last two presidential elections, with Clinton winning by 16 points. The two candidates are currently neck and neck in the polls, but the latest Cook Political Report rating has moved this race from a toss-up to leaning Republican. Florida's 27th is an open seat race. Former Health and Human Services Secretary Democrat Donna Shalala is now facing a three-way race between Republican and broadcast journalist Maria Elvira Salazar and independent Mayra Jolie. Clinton won this district, and the New York Times has called this race Democrats' best pickup opportunity in the country. The race is currently rated as leaning Democratic. And finally, in a thrilling upset, Justice Democrat and Tallahassee Mayor Andrew Gillum won the Democratic primary for governor in Florida. If he wins in November, Gillum will be the first black governor of Florida, a state with one of the largest African-American populations in the country. Now he faces Republican and former Rep. Ron DeSantis, who the day after the primary began lobbing very audible racist dog whistles. After calling Gillum articulate, DeSantis went on to say, quote, The last thing we need to do is monkey this up by trying to embrace a socialist agenda with huge tax increases and bankrupting the state. 
end quote. The race is rated as a toss-up. To vote in the Florida midterm elections, you need to be registered to vote by Tuesday, October 9th. For most counties in Florida, absentee ballot requests must be made in person at least six days before Election Day. Some counties allow you to order the ballot online. All absentee ballots must be received by 7 p.m. on Election Day. Early voting begins October 27th and ends November 3rd. It's never too early to check registration cutoff dates and absentee ballot request and submission dates in your own state. We highly recommend reviewing your state's important dates and voter ID laws at rockthevote.org as soon as possible to ensure you will be able to vote in the general election. Links to all the information you heard today, as well as additional resources, are linked in the show notes. And today's Midterms Minute, just like every activism segment we produce, is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if making the blue wave a reality in November is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting Democrats in battleground races across the country via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Hi, Jay. This is Ruth from Connecticut. Um, My question, Jay, is over and over, we liberals are encouraged to listen to other viewpoints other than our own. So I was wondering if you could suggest conservative podcasts for me and for others to listen to. And I also want to say really quickly, you are my first and only podcast that I donate via Patreon because I really feel that... um, You've ed- educated me in a ton of different uh, viewpoints that I find incredibly helpful. Thanks, Jay, and uh, stay awesome. Bye-bye. Hey, Jay, it's Alan, your member from Connecticut, calling in. I just listened to the last piece of the bonus show about regarding Kavanaugh and so forth. And it gave me some thought as far as being a person from Connecticut with Democratic senators and Congress that for the most part are in line with my views. And although sometimes I'll call them to support them for the same views, but a lot of times they are very strongly on the same side. Um, What actions am I supposed to take? against something like this? Can I call senators that are in a red state that I am not a constituent of? Does that does that do anything or they just blow me off because I'm not one of their constituents? You know, how else can my voice be heard to those that, to, to make a difference um, when my senators are already on my side. So that's kind of my thought or question. Any thoughts or suggestions from anybody? Greatly appreciate it. Thanks. Hi, Jay. This is Ligia from Sao Paulo, Brazil. I've listened to the episode about how to have better political conversations And there are just so many parallels to what's going on in my country right now. Polarization is so extreme that last week a presidential candidate was stabbed at a rally, which is extremely disturbing to say the least. But anyway, the episode reminded me of another podcast I listened to. And in one of their episodes, they were talking about the same thing. And they mentioned another tactic 
that we can employ, which is actually sharing a story of a more personal nature. So, for instance, if I'm talking to someone who doesn't support LGBT rights, I might want to share this story of a girlfriend of mine who was walking down the street hand in hand with another girl and she was assaulted by a group of people who were passing by simply because they were walking hand in hand. A story like that, which is a true story, uh, might actually be more effective than just dumping information on other people and expecting them to change their minds. So this is it. I'd love to hear what you think about this. Thanks for the show. Stay awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, let's go through these real quick. Uh, Ruth calling in asking for a conservative podcast that I can recommend. This is a question I have been getting the entire time I have been producing this show, 13 years or more, I've lost track. Um, I still don't have a good answer, but I know there is an answer out there. So conservative listeners who are listening to me right now, I know you are there. I hear from you every once in a while. Clearly, you have a similar interest, as Ruth does and as many others do, coming from the other side. You listen to this show. Hopefully that means you think this show even if it comes from a very different perspective than yours, uh, it tries to lay out reasonable arguments, doesn't go out of its way to demonize the other side, uh, treats conservatives with respect when they do call in. If you know of a similar sort of mirror image show, I would love to hear about it. As I talked about in my recent commentary, diametrically opposed views are not going to be helpful to expanding one's perspective. So, uh, you know, we're looking for shows uh, sort of hosted by these people who I I heard interviewed sort of a lot in the wake of the election. Progressive shows went out and they found what we consider to be reasonable conservatives who maybe weren't in favor of the Trump agenda and they were more in the traditional conservative, traditional Republican mold. Maybe they were fans of George H.W. Bush and they're sort of terrified at the direction the Republican Party has gone in the last couple of decades. If there are shows hosted by those kinds of people who can uh, sort of put the conservative agenda in a light, you know, coming from a perspective that can be understandable to people on the other side, progressives like myself and Ruth and others, those are the kinds of people who I think it would be helpful. It, it doesn't, I'm not saying they're the ones who are right. I just mean that those are the kinds of people who we could listen to and be open minded about and learn from. Whereas, like the Sean Hannity's of the world, we cannot listen to that. We can't take his perspective and learn something from it. It's too diametrically opposed. It's too ideological, if you know what I mean. So conservatives out there, if you have suggestions for shows sort of along these lines that I'm trying to describe, 
I would love to hear from you. Second of all, Alan from Connecticut uh, with the problem of having senators who are way too progressive. Honestly, I don't have uh, good advice for you. I, I think you're right that uh, legislators of all kinds have to triage all of the comments they get. And the very first thing they try to confirm is that you are a constituent of theirs. So it doesn't mean that calling a senator that isn't yours doesn't make any difference whatsoever. It's possible you can call in and get in touch with, you know, the intern who answers the phone and maybe they won't ask you for your, you know, your address to confirm your residency and that you're a constituent and you can get your opinion across. But aside from that, I, I don't have good advice. If anyone else does, if you have some insights into how to uh, influence legislators who are not your own, please let me know. And then finally, hearing from Ligia from Brazil, uh, yes, I absolutely agree that telling stories is one of the best ways to communicate in political arguments. If, if all you ever do is stick to your data and your facts and your broad picture uh, concepts, you might be completely right, but that's not how humans sort of latch on to new information. Humans are wired to hear and internalize stories. That's why I think that anecdotes definitely have a role to play in political debates. They can't rule political debates. We can't legislate entirely based on anecdotes. But when you're just trying to have a conversation with someone and you're trying to get a concept across to them, storytelling, especially personal storytelling, is incredibly powerful. So yes, I, I absolutely endorse that. And and then I would just say that it tends to work better on social issues. So she was talking about gay rights, essentially, and the way people can be oppressed for simply how they express themselves with their loved one in public. Like that's a great example of a personal story that can really impact someone and, and get them to understand what's at stake when we talk about uh, gay rights in this example. So I would just say that it's important to understand the limits of anecdotes and where they're going to be effective and where they're not, and, and just to make sure that you have sort of a healthy mix of anecdotes and the data and the facts to actually back those up. You don't want to go around uh, trying to convince someone of something with an anecdote that really is an outlier and is not representative of the real world. Then you get yourself into the danger zone where you end up with a backfire effect. Basically, people will figure out that the story you're telling isn't really representative. They'll call you a liar and then they'll dismiss everything you or anyone like you ever says again. So you don't want to go down that road. Thanks, as always, for all the great messages. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of the left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.